All right, everyone, let's get started today. We're starting a few minutes early because I have a doctor's appointment that I have to get out of here and rush to. Uh, it's at 1.15, so I've got to really book it out of here. I, I appreciate that. Uh, it's on my foot, so you have to lay hands on the foot. And uh, <laughs> It's from somebody laying hands on it, I think, in, in jiu-jitsu. So... We're, on, we're in Deuteronomy 8 this week, and we're continuing in Moses' is giving Israel the covenant stipulations. All right, I'm going to always be repeating what Deuteronomy is so that you will not forget we're reading a covenant document, a national charter, an agreement between God, who is the covenant king, the suzerain, and Israel, who is his vassal, his servant, who he has freed from Pharaoh. So Pharaoh had them in his grip. God freed them from Pharaoh. And just like all the other 2nd millennium BC Hittite treaties that we found, Deuteronomy is structured in a way that's laying out Israel's history with God. First of all, who God is. Then Israel's history with God that's leading up to this covenant. Then the stipulations of this covenant. The way they're going to live. And then after an, a long part of that, and this is the section that goes all the way through chapter 22, then after that, there will be a section for uh, if you do your end of the bargain, your end of the covenant, then this is how God will bless you. If you don't, this is what you can expect by way of curses. And then the covenant is ratified at the end, and all of that is what the whole book of Deuteronomy is structured around. So it's not just repeating what's come before, it's actually reaffirming this agreement that God made with their parents and their parents have all died in the desert because of their disobedience to the God of the covenant so he's giving Israel this new generation this continuation of Israel the second chance remember we saw that paradigm we've seen that paradigm all throughout the Torah is salvation is certain because God's plans will not fail but whether or not an individual gets to participate in that salvation is based on that individual's covenant obedience. And so it's a both and when it comes to salvation and how to enter into the covenant and to enjoy the benefits of the covenant. It's both and. So yes, Israel is predestined for salvation. They are God's elect. These are all words that later theologians would use to talk about New Testament believers, but they come from the Old Testament. So Israel's being saved being the elect of God, being chosen is a corporate entity. But whether or not any individual Israelite gets to partake in that chosenness, that salvation, that continuing covenant relationship is based on that individual's obedience to the covenant. So it, it's, it's, you'll hear different views and there's all kinds of arguments that Christians have about predestination, once saved, always saved, can you fall away, can you lose your salvation, can you throw it away, um, all of those debates are fine and Christians can have them if you really want to, but just know that the Old Testament gives us the paradigm for what salvation looks like at, the, at, at one level, and then the New Testament takes that and universalizes it, or brings it, uh, takes it outside the borders of Israel under the new covenant but right now we're in the old covenant 
And it's still the same purpose. It's still God's desire to reach and bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. Just on our side of the cross, we know that the seed of Abraham, capital S, had a name. And it was Jesus of Nazareth. But at this point, the seed of Abraham is collectively the covenant people of God. And that's who Moses is giving these words to. So he tells them, again, this is Moses' last will and testament. He's going to die as soon as this is over. So he's speaking his final words of this generation. He's raised these people from infancy. All of, most of the people that he's talking to literally were children when they came out of Egypt or were not yet born. So this is, this is like he's speaking, they're almost like they've become his children, his sheep, and he's the shepherd, which is what Moses was for 40 years of his life. So he says in chapter 8, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. The promise goes all the way back to Genesis 15. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Manna. We saw this in, back in Exodus. Manna. Manhu in the Hebrew. Manhu literally means what is it? That, it's not a special name. The, the word manna is just what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. People have speculated. Some have said it's a secretion of a certain type of insect. Uh, some have said it's a type of uh, flowering plant. Some have said it's all speculation. We don't know. We don't know what any of it is. And the Israelites didn't know. They just called it manna. What is it? But we know that it was enough to sustain tens of thousands of people for 40 years in the Arabian desert. It's pretty significant. Whatever this stuff was, it certainly wasn't natural. And God provided it, but He did it. The, the passage says He did it. He caused you to hunger. He led you into this wilderness where He could then provide you this stuff. Where He could then feed you. He led you. He will provide for you. Not something that you made with your own hands. Not something that you... The time of the wilderness was a time of testing. It was a time of refining. It was a time of, of, with the last generation, purging. And so there was a purpose in it. There's a purpose in the desert. There's a purpose when you're in the wilderness. And the interesting thing is that Jesus knew this intimately. Specifically, this passage He knew intimately. Because 1,400 years after this was written, give or take, Jesus would be in the same desert. At this same area, geographically, east of the Jordan River, and He would be humbled by God, the Spirit that led Him out into the wilderness. He would be tested by the enemy who would say, hey, you're God's servant. Why don't you make bread out of these rocks? You can do it. God can create. God, can, God made manna before. Do it again now if you're who you say you are. Jesus responded with this verse. Moses says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth 
of the Lord. That's what Jesus referred, responded to when Satan tested him. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tested by Satan, it wasn't random. He was reliving Israel's story. He was taking the identity of Israel on himself. And he was in the wilderness where Israel confirmed the covenant. And he would then succeed where they had failed during their 40 years. He would succeed during his 40 days and 40 nights. And then he would go back into the promised land, just as Israel did, and he would succeed there as well where they failed. There's a reason he goes in. There's a reason he gathers 12 disciples. There's a reason he says things like, I am the true vine, which was an image for Israel in the Old Testament. I am, my body is the temple. Tear it down, I'll build it in three days. You know, Jesus is taking on the identity of Israel throughout his ministry. But if we don't know the story of Israel intimately, we miss those echoes and those clues that Jesus was shouting out by his words and his deeds in the New Testament. So that's the, 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 the importance of his testing in the wilderness comes from us knowing what Israel went through in the wilderness. And not just in a general sense, but specifically in Deuteronomy. Every time Satan, Jesus replied to Satan, remember, every single time he replied with a section from Deuteronomy. With a verse from Deuteronomy. It's not accidents. It's not coincidence. So Moses is telling Israel, this is what God did to, you know, showing you, you survive, you thrive, you live because of what I provide, not because of how mighty you are. Because remember, Israel, they're just a rabble of slaves. 400 years of slavery, they could do nothing on their own. They had to have God redeem them and bring them out and feed them and provide for them and, and lead them into battle. And they're going to overthrow some of the mightiest peoples in this part of the world at the time if they are in obedience to God and the covenant. And he reminds them, verse 4, during this wilderness time, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't swell or, or become callous. There's a, we don't know exactly what that word that's translated swell means. Uh, it's only used a handful of times and it could mean you know, to become cracked and calloused or it could mean to swell up. Or it could, it basically though, God's saying, I've provided for you. I've provided for your clothes. I've provided for your food. I've provided for your health for 40 years. Verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. James will talk about this in the New Testament. Jesus will talk about it too in his book of Revelation and his letters to the churches. This is a theme and a concept is God is disciplining, chastising, training his son. Who's his son in the Old Testament? Israel. Israel is God's son. That was what he said in Exodus. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go so they can come worship me in the wilderness. Pharaoh says no. God says then I will take your firstborn sons. And that was the final plague. Israel is the firstborn son. That's a radical concept when we get to Jesus when he claims to be the firstborn son. Once again, Jesus being Israel. So, verse 6, Observe the commands of the Lord your God walking in His ways and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land with streams and pools of water. Now remember, they've been in the desert. They've been in the rocky barren wilderness desert for 40 years and this is the description that he's giving them they're about to enter a land with streams and pools of water with springs in the valleys and the hills a land with wheat 
and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Everything they'll need from food to technology. God is giving it to them in this land. God is saying, I'm the good king who's going to bring you into this. All you have to do is follow me. Keep my commands. Keep my covenant to enter, to enjoy this which is your birthright, being my firstborn son. So again, he's giving them, this, is, this would have been, you know, I mean, when you're thirsty, think of the thirstiest you've ever been. If somebody, if you see a, just a cool glass of water, it's the most incredible thing you can imagine. And that's what God is promising them. And, but there's a warning with that. See, God does want to bless Right? The, the prosperity, the name it and claim it preachers, they do have it right in one little sense, which is God does want to bless rather than curse people. He does want our best in general. But, here's the counter warning, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you this day. Praising God and remembering God are linked inextricably to keeping the decrees, the laws, and the commands. You cannot have one without the other. It's, that's covenant obedience. Covenant blessing is only realized as we walk in covenant obedience. So when you see someone and they're like, I'm just blessed. Hashtag blessed. God's blessed me. But their life is a life of filth or a life of taking advantage of people or a life of rank materialism or, or a life of just rushing after the things of the world. You can know for certain that they do not understand what the term blessed actually means. And that they are doing exactly what this says, which is taking advantage or presuming on God's grace. Because God's blessing is realized in, his obe in obedience to His covenant. And that's what He wants to give us. He's far more concerned about blessing our character than He is about blessing our checkbooks. Far more concerned about what we do for others than what kind of vehicle we drive or what kind of suit we wear far more concerned with those things. And so he goes on to say, otherwise when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and your gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will raise up. Literally in Hebrew, raise up. And NIV says become proud. But your heart, your, your inner self, you'll become haughty. You'll, you'll think you're something all of a sudden. As if you had any part to play in this, is what God's saying. Your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert. That thirsty and waterless land with its fiery snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the flint rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert. Something your fathers had never known to humble you and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, 
the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. So this is the, this is the, the, the danger of prosperity. People often preach about the blessings and the desire for prosperity and, and, and thinking that that just means material wealth. And right here, Moses is telling God's people, pleading with them, listen, when God does give you these blessings, there is a major danger. The danger is that you will become used to those blessings and that you'll think even worse that you deserve those blessings or that you had something to do with bringing that about. But at the end of the day, no one can claim any ability other than what God's given them. You know, even people, we're in America and the Protestant work ethic plus <laughs> rank slavery built this country. Um, and people assume that, you know, well, you got to, you know, I worked, I produced this. This is my wealth. This is my, you know, who are you to take it from me? Whether it's government or people seeking charity or whatever. And what they're realizing is, yeah, but you had nothing to do with who your parents were. You had nothing to do with the fact that you were born here rather than in Somalia. You had nothing to do with that. So God is the one who decides at every step of the way what you have access to and what He allows you to do and to bring forth. So yes, there is Scripture. There are passages that talk about, yes, don't be idle, don't be lazy. Yes, if a man will not work, a man shall not eat. Yes, God does preach hard work. The whole book of Proverbs will nail that uh, over and over and over into people's minds. But that comes later. The foundation, though, is everything you've been given, everything is God giving it to you. And so He is the one who is responsible for all of that. And anything that we do, anything that we have, the relationship to it is stewards is that we are stewards of God's stuff. And if Christians could realize that, you know, the average giving among Christians, Protestant Christians, the average giving to church is 3%. Like we don't even make the baseline of tithing. Tithing was the baseline of the Old Testament. It was the minimum. You tithed, and then you gave your offerings, which was more than the tithe. We don't even do that as Christians. Now, is there a New Testament command that you have to tithe? No, actually, it was an Old Testament command. And, and, and specifically, there's no New Testament requirement that you tithe to a church. But there's the spirit of the Old Testament covenant commands, which is first 10% belongs to God. Everything after that belongs to God too, but He lets you keep it and do stuff with it for the advancement of His kingdom. So if Jesus raised the bar in every respect when it came to the law, why would He not raise it in the area of generosity as well? And so for Christians, to me, I think it's, no, is God commanding you to tithe? No. But I kind of think that there needs to be a really, 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 really good reason if you're not. Because it was the minimum in the Old Testament. So surely we in the New Covenant can do better than God's minimum in the Old Covenant. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. You know, the poorest person in the world can tithe. Like, give to people. I know people that work 
and, and their, their job is, say, like counseling or, or, or consulting or something like that. One out of every ten appointments they do for free or they do for someone in need. You know, that's a way of tithing. That's a way. I know people that make stuff or sew stuff or, or create with their hands and, you know, one out of ten, they give it away. Like even that is, there, there are ways to honor the spirit of generosity that the Old Testament teaches without keeping or be, yoking ourselves to the actual law. And I think that's what God calls us to do because this, we, we look around, you know, in this room and, and there are people in here who have, over your life, you have come in contact with millions and millions of dollars through your work, through your own investments, whatever. And there are some people in this room, you've never seen more than $1,000 at one time. And the whole spectrum. So we have, but the person who's the worst off in this room, financially speaking, is still better off than about 90% of the world's population that have ever lived in the history of mankind. And so the perspective needed, if we only look at the, what is out there in our society rather than the rest of the world and what God has given us in terms of blessing, then our perspective gets a little skewed. And so we'll say, well, yeah, you know, I'm poor. Are you? Do you have a house? Does it have running water? Do you have transportation? If you have those three things, by world standards, you are not poor. You're fabulously wealthy. So it, it's a perspective thing. And, and even that, though, keeping in mind it's God that's given that. He's allowed us to have that. So, how then can I do what Moses is commanding Israel not to do, or what Moses is commanding Israel to do, which is to not forget God? How do you not forget God? One of the major ways is through our giving. Not necessarily to a church. Not necessarily to any specific thing. Just the attitude of generosity. I have a friend who's helped me over the years more than anybody that's I'm not my immediate family. I've, he's, he's listened to me. Uh, he's given me counsel. He's given me wisdom. He's given me advice. He's built me up when I've been at my absolute lowest of lows. And he's not doing great financially at the moment. He's had to sacrifice a lot. And he has kids and a wife. And, and so when I come into some extra money, I will write him a check. Or actually, I'll send it to him digitally because that's the age we live in. But I will give him money. And I give it saying, hey, listen, this is for you and your family because you've blessed me. I want to give some of that back. And it's not, there's no official, I don't get a tax write-off for it. It's not a, and it's not a big amount. I'm not bragging at all. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's minor in the big sense of it. But it's a way of me saying, Lord, You've blessed me through this servant of yours. Help me bless him somehow in some way that I'm able. And then raise up other people who will do the same for him. Whether it's a job promotion, whether it's a windfall of financial blessing, whether it's somebody, whatever. There's all kinds of ways God can meet our needs. But as we do that to other people, then... God has a way in His economy of making sure and seeing that other people do that for us. And that everybody ends up helping each other out and it doesn't even have to get into conversations of capitalism versus socialism and charity versus taxes and all this kind of stuff. It's just the family of God, the people of God being the people of God. So, no matter... The, the, the ta one of the uh, takeaways from this 
section for me is one of the ways to honor God and what He's given us is to, by having that spirit of generosity and looking for ways to honor other people or to bless other people with, with, with no desire to get something back. To just be a blessing. Remember what He promised to Abraham? I'll bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. The seed of Abraham is to be a blessing for God's people. What Paul says in Galatians, if anyone is in Christ, he is Abraham's seed and heirs to the promises. Galatians 2 and 3. So that means that we in Christ are in the seed of Abraham. So the calling of Abraham to bless the nations is also our calling. And that will happen not just through preaching. Ooh, the worst thing, since we're in a restaurant, I'm going I'm to call it out and name it. If you do this, repent because it's evil, is people will go eat at a restaurant, have a server wait on them, and then leave, if anything, a tiny little tip and a track that says about salvation. That is such a spit in the face of Jesus to do that. And yet some Christians will do it and think that they're actually doing something for the kingdom. That's horrible. That is, that is just absolutely horrible. Because that person cannot feed their family with your track. But they can feed it with your money. So if you've got enough money to eat out, you have enough money to tip. If you don't have enough money to tip, you don't have enough money to eat out, go to McDonald's. That's my rant. That's for the video. But that's just a pet peeve of mine because Christians, we are notorious for being cheap and miserly and, and non-charitable when it comes to the little things like that. We've got to do better. We've got to do better. Okay, rant over. But it's in the spirit of what God's saying, which is to be generous do not forget god is the one who's blessed you and given you everything so look for ways then that you can return that blessing or you can multiply that blessing outwards to other people and then the last thing that he says uh, uh, verse 19 and this is the this is the severe part of it if you ever forget the lord your god and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them I testify against you today, you will surely be destroyed. And it's a strong wording in Hebrew. Absolutely be destroyed is how you could translate it. Or destroying or being destroyed, you will be destroyed. It's a, it's a repetitive thing that doesn't translate in English. But, but the emphasis is very certain. God is saying, this is, I, am, I swear to you, that's what it means. I testify before you. It's like saying, I swear, if you go after other gods, you will be destroyed. Verse 20, like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. There's a stern, stern warning. The next chapter, that's the segue into chapter 9, which is going to remind them of what that looks like. And it's also going to remind them that God is not doing any of this because Israel deserves it. None of it is because of what they deserve. It's because of what God promised to do through the seed of Abraham. And He's giving them the chance to be part of that worldwide universal implications of this, the salvation that He's offering. And what He's going to do through them for the entire world. But he's making it crystal clear. And Deuteronomy makes this clear. You cannot presume you're standing before God. At least in the Old Covenant. 
There was no presumption of your standing before God. It was based on how are you living? What are you doing with your life? And what is your heart? Who rules your heart? Whoever rules your heart, that's your covenant Lord. And so God's saying, be fully devoted to Me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. So we'll come back. We've got to run a few minutes early, but we started a couple minutes early, so we're good. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 9. He's going to walk him through uh, 9 and 10. He's kind of walking him through, sort of giving him a quick history lesson, like a remembering. Remember, Moses is preaching, and every good preacher will use repetition. Every good preacher will use illustrations from people's lives, and that's what Moses is doing, and it's their parents' lives that he's illustrating. But all of this then, when you're reading Deuteronomy, you're not reading law. You're reading preached law. So it's not like Exodus or Leviticus where it's law, law, law. This is preaching. So it's taking the law, but it's preaching it. He's, 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 you can feel his emotion in it and his passion. So we'll look at that next week. There's plenty of food left. You want seconds? There's some really good desserts. Grab that. Otherwise, have a great week. Remember, invite someone specific. Put the card that I gave you a couple weeks ago in their hand and say, hey, come Tuesday, have lunch with us. Do the, come to this Bible study. We have a great time. Meet some cool people. Um, this is a really good thing. Best kept lunch in Charlotte. So let people know about it. Everybody have a great week.